Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. This episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast is brought to you by our friends at the United States Concealed Carry Association. The USCCA is about something bigger than the right to bear arms. It, it is a resource to help you be ready for the before, during, and after of a self-defense incident. If you are not one of the 500,000 plus responsibly armed Americans who are proud USCCA members, then now is the time to explore USCCA membership. Click learn more below right now to learn about the life-saving education, industry-leading training, and self-defense liability insurance. Click learn more right now. And once again, as a reminder, the USCCA is not an insurance company. A policy has been issued to the USCCA by Universal Fire and Casualty Insurance Company. That policy provides the association and its members with self-defense liability insurance subject to its terms, conditions, and exclusions, limitations and exclusions. And remember, with your USCCA Membership, you get the really cool Concealed Carry magazine. This is the March, April, February, March edition of 2023. So again, click learn more, join the United States Concealed Carry Association. We'll be right back. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Today we have with us an incredible man, an incredible American. And if you want to understand the embodiment of the American dream, Dinesh D'Souza is that person. He is a best-selling author and award-winning filmmaker. His political documentaries, 2016, Obama's America, and America, Imagine a World Without Her, are among the highest-grossing political films of all time. An immigrant, legal, who grew up in Mumbai, India, Dinesh came to the United States in 1978 as an exchange student. He attended Dartmouth College, graduating Phi Beta Kappa. He was a domestic policy analyst at the Reagan White House and also a scholar at think tanks such as the American Enterprise Institute and the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Dinesh has written nearly 20 books and made five movies. His latest book, United States of Socialism, was a New York Times bestseller. The film, based on that book, Trump Card, released on video on demand in the fall of 2020. He teamed up with his wife, Debbie, to produce a daily podcast, which debuted January of 2021 and is part of the Salem Podcast Network. In 2022, the D'Souza media team, they linked up with True the Vote to bring to light the most important movie in America called 2000 Mules. It was released the first week of May of 2022. Dinesh and Debbie live in the Lone Star State and together have three grown children. 
Sir, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Alan, it's a pleasure and an honor. So thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to do it. Well, you know, when I look at you and I having this conversation right here, this is the embodiment of the equality of opportunity and why we see America as such an exceptional country. You coming here from Mumbai, India, my being born 62 years ago in a blacks-only hospital, why is it that the left does not want to respect or regard that? What is it that is driving them? And maybe your book, United States of Socialism, can give some perspective on that. Well, the way I look at it is that we all come with multiple identities mm-hmm. and, and relationships, right? In other words, we are individuals and some we come into the world alone and we leave alone. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the individuality that we all are, uh, embody. Uh, we also are, you know, husbands, sons, uh, brothers, and so on. So we've got those relationships. We're members of local communities. We went to colleges, so we're alumni of those colleges. Uh, we're also a particular ethnicity, black, Hispanic, uh, Asian American. Now, interestingly, that ethnicity part of it is in flux. When I was in India, I would never call myself Asian uh, mm-hmm. because Indians don't have that much historically in common with, say, you know, Orientals or Chinese or Japanese. Uh, but here in America, all the different kind of Asian groups get thrown mm-hmm. together. Uh, but then we're also uh, members of a, of a national tribe. We're Americans. Um, and uh, so what I'm getting at is that what the left does is that they identify certain identities, uh, the racial identity, the gender identity, the sort of sexual orientation, and then they attack all the other forms of identity as somehow illegitimate. So the individualism is, is illegitimate. Uh, nationalism is really bad because it's a disguised form of fascism. But I think that what the left is doing is that they are choosing the identities that enable their politics of division. And in that sense, they are narrowing and um, mutilating us as human beings because we have a much richer set of identities than just the two or three that the left singles out. Yeah, because when you look at it, that's, this, that's why I call it cultural Marxism. People try to break it down, critical race theory up here in uh, North Texas who had the cultural competency action plan, DEI. It's just a means by which they can put us in these collective boxes and that they accept and then try to destroy any other type of classification. So, you know, how do we get to the point where we can peel the onion back on this cultural Marxism? And what do you think will be the most effective tool by which we can do that? So um, I think you're quite right in seeing it as cultural Marxism. Uh, One of the points I make in the United States of Socialism is I say that it is a it's a modified cultural Marxism in this sense. It has all the key elements of Marxism, right? It's it's first of all, it's a division into the and it's not just a division into A and B. It's a division into the oppressor class and the oppressed. And so it's an attempt right away to create antagonism between the groups. But for Marx, the division was a class division exclusively. Uh, in fact, Marx didn't like other forms of division because I think he, he felt that this would prevent the working class from unifying. And so Marx didn't like racial division and other forms of division. But what the left has done is they've realized that in the United States, those forms of division are in some ways even more potent than class division. Uh, and so that's why they have tapped into the veins of racial uncertainty and anxiety Uh, And so what 
you create is, I call it identity socialism, because it's essentially Marxism now infused with the politics of race uh, and gender uh, and, um, and transgender and so on. Now, as long as this politics pays off, no amount of rhetoric or even persuasive argument on our part is going to work because it is paying dividends to the other side. It's like trying to persuade somebody uh, who's getting a benefit that the benefit is somehow bad for him, even though it's money in his pocket. So what we have to do, I think, politically is defeat this divisive politics and then it's possible to create a reconciliation. It's very similar to my view on things like free speech and censorship. Again, no amount of op-eds uh, are going to be convince the left that censorship is bad. As long as we are the ones being censored and they are the ones doing it, they go, hey, we don't see a free speech <laughs> yeah. problem. We're not being suppressed. No one's going to throw us off Facebook or YouTube. So what's the problem? We're happy to keep doing it because it's like the bully. I get to kick your butt and you never get to kick my butt. Yeah. So it's only when you start stamping on the feet of the bully that he goes, ouch, ouch, ouch. Uh, and then he realizes this bullying thing isn't working out so well for me. And then he begins to back off. And now you can have a conversation about civility because he sees that civility is in his interest, no less than in yours. You know, and that's such an interesting point, because I just finished a book written by a California state senator, H.L. Richardson, and it was called Confrontational Politics. And he talks about how we on the conservative side, we, we are not comfortable with getting in there into the ring and doing, as you say, confronting them and being tough and fighting back the, against the bullies. So do you think that we have to have a different generation of conservative leadership, conservative politicians, whatever, that are able to go on the offense? Because it seems that we're always on the defense, we're always reacting, we're always playing based off of their, the game, the play that they're calling. Now, the reason I think that we do this, and I agree, this is the psychology of the Republicans, of the Patriots, the conservatives, the Christians. By and large, it is the psychology right of center. But the reason it's that psychology is that there's an underlying premise that turns out to be wrong. And the underlying premise is that we and the left sort of agree on goals, but we disagree on means. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this was true in uh, previous eras in American politics. I mean, when I came to America in 1978, even though there was division over the Vietnam War and so on, by and large, I think if you went across America and said to people, do you think America should be strong? Do you think America should be prosperous? Do you think that we've got a great recipe to share with the world? We might argue about how to take a big pie and divide it. We might argue about that, but that we should be creating a big pie through sensible policies. Do you agree that we should have a, a law and order in our society? Would you like to see us be not only free and prosperous, but also kind of a decent society? You'd get huge majorities of Americans going, well, yeah. Um, so, so in a sense, what I'm saying is that the assumptions of the right are antiquated. We think that our enemies are not enemies. They're not really our political adversaries. They just are deluded. They don't understand that, you know, you need tax cuts to invigorate economic growth. They don't understand that it's not a good idea to make a deal with the Iranians. They don't understand that it's, it's hyperbolic to call us insurrectionists and domestic terrorists. And the problem is, all of that's wrong. They do understand. They're doing it for a reason. They have a very good reason for doing it. 
Um, and that is that if you want to lock somebody up, you have to call them an insurrectionist first so you can then charge them with sedition. You know, just like with, if you think back to Waco and Ruby Ridge, yes, you've got yeah. to call these guys militiamen and domestic terrorists. Uh, or, you know, you got this kook and, and you know, you got to dehumanize the guy first. And then everyone goes, oh, yeah, well, sure. Of course, we blew up his building and killed 80 people because this guy was a kook. Uh, so the demonization has a political objective. That's why they're doing it. And once we realize that that's why they're, they're doing it, we won't be so naive in the way that we respond. We'll recognize that we are facing a really serious threat that in the mind of the left uh, and, and for its political purposes, they want and need to call us the equivalent, the domestic equivalent of ISIS and al-Qaeda, and they do not shrink from the implications of that. Now, you're absolutely right. I mean, every time you turn around, uh, you're Nazis, you're, you're extremists, you're terrorists, and all of these things. It's an incredible juxtaposition. Parents that show up because they want to see their kids being educated, they're domestic terrorists, but then the actual people like Antifa go out in black with their mask on, and they attack you know, federal buildings, state uh, governmental buildings. They kill uh, and burn down neighborhoods, and that's perfectly fine. That's peaceful protest. So what type of awakening, other than that, what we, what we see clearly with our eyes, will enable us to get to the point where we understand this is purposeful. This is intentional. You just don't all of a sudden have five to seven million people coming across your border illegally. You just don't allow China to kill over 100,000 of your people because of a chemical that they are producing that a terrorist organization, the cartels are bringing across, but yet you want to tell people that the border is safe and secure. So you know, is there a percentage of Americans that will buy into that? Or is there a possibility that we can win a majority of folks that realize we're going off the rails here? Well, I think that we have a problem here because the media outlets that we have are more limited in their reach than the left. You know, people say, oh, wow, Fox News Channel is bigger than CNN and MSNBC. That may be true, but Fox News Channel is tiny compared to NPR. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you consider the ability of the left to reach the mainstream, which they do through local news shows and they do through The View and they do, do through comedy, it's almost like what you have is a situation where they alone are speaking to the people in the middle and we are speaking by and large to the already alert activists on our own side. So we need to build bigger pipes, if you will, so that our content is able to reach out more widely. Now we have one such pipe right now, and that's Twitter. Twitter yeah. is huge. Uh, and if you just look at the coverage of the transgender, you know, domestic terrorist on Twitter, it's yes, completely yeah. different than anything you see in the national media. It's different than CNN. It's different than the New York Times. You look at a typical media headline and two words don't appear. Transgender doesn't appear and Christian doesn't appear. But, in, uh, but it's all over Twitter. So by and large, if you're just an ordinary guy on Twitter and you're there just to post funny stuff and check out what people are talking about, you're going to start getting a very different picture than you're getting from the mainstream media. But we need to build those kinds of um, channels out uh, in a very big way 
um, and uh, and that's when we'll be able to get our message across. So I don't think it's because the American people won't listen to us. I don't think it's because our message isn't strong. It's just that when our pipes aren't big enough to reach the people we need to reach. You know, and, and that's a great point, which is why the left was just so vehemently, uh, vehemently opposed to Elon Musk getting control of, of Twitter and exposing them. You know, you went to an, an esteemed Ivy League school, Dartmouth College, how can we effect some type of change, just a modicum of change in the uh, arena of academia? Well, I will tell you a way um, that uh, will not only affect a modicum of change, but would, uh, would uh, send a, a gale force tsunami right through higher education. But it's not the way that we're going about it now. The way we're going about it now is to create insular small institutions that are alternatives. Now, I agree that when you're being swamped on all sides, it's kind of nice to have a refuge in the same way that if it's sand all around you, it's nice to have an oasis. But having an oasis doesn't mean you've taken over the desert. It's still a desert. Um, And there's no viable way for us to take back 300 or 400 major institutions of higher education, they are dug in on the left in a, in a way it's even hard to describe. I sent my daughter to Dartmouth. She, was, uh, she graduated in 2017. I sometimes joke with her that she's the last person to get a decent education out of one of those institutions. And it was micromanaged by me. I mean, I literally told her <laughs> what courses to take, what professors to avoid, um, what courses were junk. And so the point is these colleges are now full of junk. Uh, And they're full of people who shouldn't be teaching, who are just activists. Um, So what I'm saying is we need to create, in my opinion, um, and and I've proposed this idea to uh, to Elon Musk before, we need to create a world-class online university with reputed teachers and scholars. And I don't just mean PhDs, practicing businessmen, practicing people in media and the arts, creating this kind of superstar faculty, better than the faculty of Stanford or Harvard, and they offer a world-class online education for a absurdly low price, something like $1,000 a year. And the advantage of this is that you've suddenly created the academic iPhone. You have made all of higher education obsolete. I'm not saying it would go out of business overnight, but I'm saying suddenly a parent goes, why on earth would I send my kid to Tulane and spend $55,000 a year when I can spend $1,000 a year and have faculty that people have heard of? They'll be learning politics from Condoleezza Rice. They'll be learning journalism from some guy who's actually making films. So the point is that we can do this. We have the means. We have the money. There's no reason not to do it. But we often don't think on the supply side like this. We're thinking in terms of like, the ordinary citizen comes up to me and says, what can I do? And there are things you can do, but there are also things that have to be done by people who are able to put creative constellations of resources and ideas and academic skills together and offer a new type of product that doesn't currently exist on the market. Now, that's a great point because in the military, we have the three levels of warfare, if you want to call it the strategic level, operational level, and the tactical level. But everything is nested. They're all linked together. They understand their respective tasks and purposes, and they have the respective lines of effort that they're working towards, media, academia, uh, you name it, government, uh, religious institutions. So why are we so lacking on our side? Because when I look at the left, it seems like, Dinesh, they've got somebody in a basement somewhere, 
that is always, you know, five years ahead of us. And then, of course, we figured it out five years after they've already done it. How can we get that type of strategic uh, perspective out there or that strategic insight? Because I really believe that's where we're lacking because everything flows downstream from that strategic uh, observations and plan. Well, I think, you know, we would have to do it the way they do it is they they are, first of all, uh, chronically disposed to activism. Activism mm -hmm. is their thing. They feel at home doing it. This is why if they call a demonstration, you've got all these people readily available, because these are people who like to go do that kind of stuff. Um, our people have to be like cajoled into it because it's not their natural thing to do. And after January 6th, you can understand yes. why they'd be even more reluctant than ever. Uh, I think we have to do it the entrepreneurial way, but there's a big educational task ahead because I can't tell you. I mean, I, I've had meetings with guys who have a billion dollars to give away and, and I'm not even asking them to give it away. I'll ask them to put it into a movie or put it into a university project and they come back with a, a, a counter proposal that is so monumentally inane that I, I find it hard to believe I'm actually talking to an educated person. Like they'll say something like, well, you know, we we give to character education. And I'm like, we're not talking about character education. We're talking about transforming higher education. Yeah. And every bad idea in America is being minted in some university. Yeah. All yeah. this nonsense of CRT was minted 30 years ago in law schools around places like the University of Michigan. They They cooked it up. And so, you know, we're not cooking anything up. And that's what makes us so reactive. Uh, I'll tell you a short uh, and true story about when I did my first film on Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to see a guy, again, a, a very famous guy with a with a with a recognized name uh, in New York uh, to talk to him about putting some money into helping to distribute the film. And I said, this film, I've already tested it with un with undecided voters. It's going to swing them dramatically toward in that case. It was the Romney campaign. Um, and I said, I just don't have the resources to get it out to these undecideds, but you do. And I'm just looking for you to see if you'll help me to do that. And he goes, well, Dinesh, uh, nobody watches movies anymore. So I have a long pause. And first of all, I know that that's ridiculous. People are watching movies actually more than ever. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes, why don't you put the message of your film into a 90 second um, video? And I go, well, I can't do that because the film is about how Obama's not really a civil rights guy a la Selma, Montgomery, Martin Luther King. He's really an anti-colonial guy whose ideas have been, in a sense, baked in faraway countries like where his dad grew up in, in, in Kenya and so on. And so for me to educate people on what is anti-colonialism, what does all that mean, what are the implications, it's really hard for me to do it except in a movie. And he goes, no, 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 boil it down to 90 seconds. He goes, you got to learn to make 90 second clips. And I go, I do make 90 second clips. They're called trailers, trailers. but they drive people to the movie. So, you know, you think of it, I, I leave that meeting and I'm thinking to myself, what kind of conversation is that when here I am on the front lines of the culture trying to tell someone this, I've already created this product. My own investors have paid for it. I'm giving it to you and asking you to share it with undecided voters that can make a critical difference in a key presidential election. And this guy is so out of it, but yet he's lecturing me about the way things really are in the culture. Nobody watches movies. It's got to be 90 seconds. So all I'm trying to say is we have a lot of work to do in convincing the people on our side who do have the means that there's a real fight and that there's a real way to fight. 
Well, to me, what you just described is a little bit of that soft bigotry of low expectations, where we believe that people cannot, you know, understand something past 90 seconds. Uh, we don't want the critical thinkers. We don't want to challenge people. And so we have played into that narrative that the left has put out there, which is the reason why we don't have good education. We just have soundbite, drive-by indoctrination. Let's switch uh, as we get ready to close out. Incredible documentary you put out last year, 2,000 Mules. Have we learned anything from that? Do you see any improvements? Because when I looked at what happened in Arizona this past midterm election, we're still getting our butts handed to us. Well, they couldn't uh, deploy the mules. And so it is true that the just the disinfectant of putting the idea out there, the left will go, oh, no, we're not doing that and so on. But the, the point is we didn't see a whole lot of that in 2022. Now, in 2022, we saw a different move, and it was an ingenious move in Arizona, and it was a move that took advantage of our own gullibility. And what I mean is, you know, we tend to be – principled about these kinds of things. There's got to be a single election day. Everybody's got to show up to vote. So the left goes, we'll take early voting and bank a lot of votes, right? And then if we can create a glitch on election day, this is fantastic because it's kind of like the Republican army is all going to show up under one tree. All we have to do is figure out how to cut some branches and have them drop on their heads. And we've dis we've essentially disrupted their whole a game plan. So what I mean is that they were able, you know, through negligence or, you know, gee, the machines which were working before suddenly stopped working. It has a disproportionate impact on Republicans. But the judge goes, I don't see any intentional effort here to suppress yeah, the yeah. vote. And so I think that they pulled a fast one on Kerry Lake uh, uh, by by essentially arranging it to disrupt Election Day. And that was enough in a close election to make the difference. If you think about, you know, looking forward to 2024, what would be the tactic that they would try to employ? You, you know, 2020 was about leveraging COVID and the unsolicited mail-in ballots. Mark Zuckerberg out there with the Zuckerbucks all over the place, the mules that you talked about. Now we've, you know, seen the machine manipulation. Where do they go next? Uh, because if you look at the record of Joe Biden, there's no reason why he should get reelected. No, that's true. Um, and I think I think that a strong and unified ticket on the right will be very formidable and the left will realize that. Now, the the advantage that they will play to is they will go all out. I mean, I think you've read recently Biden is having regular meetings with people like Zuckerberg. They will try to use the tech platforms of which, by the way, the most powerful is Google. And it's partly powerful because it's invisible. I mean, if I put my podcast on Facebook and I violate their guidelines and they ban me, I know I'm banned. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if people are searching for me on Google and all the results that come up are negative, that's because Google behind the screen is orchestrating uh, an algorithm that's going that's designed to be a kind of hit job on me. So the left will use these kinds of tactics. The other thing that they will do is they've gotten very good at their ground game. They've got tons of the uh, telephone numbers of people who are undecided, who don't think about politics all, you know, all year or even really the whole political season until right before Election Day. But right before Election Day, when Republicans are having a rally, oh, wow, Tudor Dixon has 10,000 people in an arena. At the same time, the Democrats are sending out one million texts to undecided people, telling them exactly where their local 
uh, booth is to show up to vote and will you please come and vote for us? And they don't hear from the other side. So they go, well, gee, these people took the trouble to reach out to me. So the, the Republicans really need, uh, and this is where I'm worried about the RNC, you know, does it, is it really taking seriously enough the idea that we are in a real fight with people who know what they're doing, quite apart from cheating. They know what they're doing in terms of mobilizing their troops. If we can meet them tactic for tactic and resource for resource, I'm confident we can beat them. Well, you know, Saul Alinsky wrote the book Rules for Radicals, and they follow it. And we will not be successful if we don't understand their blueprint. In the final minute uh, or so, what, what's your message? What's the new project that you're working on uh, going forward? And how can people follow you and stay in touch with all the great work that you're doing? I do a daily podcast. It's audio and video. It's just a Dinesh D'Souza podcast, so you can find it in audio at Apple, for example, or Spotify. I put it also daily on YouTube and Rumble, although I prefer people to watch on Rumble. We need to build our alternative platforms, so I'm giving that uh, priority. I'm working on a movie project, which I'll announce soon. It's coming out in October, but it's basically the topic that's on everybody's minds. Um, And I think I've got a a really powerful way to depict it. So I'm really excited about it. We're in the process of of scripting and shooting it now, uh, a movie for the fall. And so uh, between the podcast and my book projects and speaking here and there and so on, I've got a pretty full plate. Well, I will tell you that without a doubt, you are one of the great philosophical and cultural thought leaders in this country. I advise people to follow you and and read your books and look at your documentaries and take the time to be informed, educated, and activated because that's what you're challenging us to do. So Dinesh D'Souza, thank you so very much for joining us here at the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you. God bless. A special thanks to a dear friend and fellow Texan, Dinesh D'Souza for joining us on this episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. If you like this podcast, please click the like button and share it with others because we exist to serve you, to better educate, inform, and activate you to go out and protect this great constitutional republic. And until next time, steadfast and loyal. Before they burn it down.